Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 15 through 29. And if you're using a Bible from the back, you will be able to find it on page 556. Verse 15, in my life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil, in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. and Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from this, excuse me, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom give, gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth. Who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. Lest your heart, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been, been is far off and deep very deep who can find it out i turn my heart to know and to search search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness and i find something more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and net whose hands are fetters he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have, have not found. One, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Well, we are back in this text again this morning. Really, because I feel like I needed to spend some time actually applying the theme a little bit that we talked about last week. You remember our theme was verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And we talked about what that means. And so what I want to do is come back to this theme and work it out practically some more this morning. I've entitled the message, A Superior God for the Super Righteous. And let's be really clear about this. 
This text and this reality applies to every one of us. We all have this tendency within ourselves. It's part of what it means to be a sinner. And so we have a tendency to be overrighteous. And I want to talk more about that this morning and unpack that theme and apply that theme to us. I want to do that with three key ideas. We're going to talk about the reality of super righteousness the reason for super-righteousness, and the remedy to super-righteousness. If you remember, we defined super-righteousness last week as an idea that is really unique in some ways to this letter. We don't see this idea at least expressed the way Solomon expresses it in other parts of the Bible. We see the theme Addressed in other parts of the Bible, but not necessarily the way Solomon puts it here. Some have dubbed these verses the middle path or the golden mean, which suggests that we should not be too righteous or too wicked. And we talked about that that's not the idea at all. Solomon is not trying to strike a happy balance or a medium between righteousness and wickedness. Because if he's doing that, If he's telling us to be moderately godly, he's contradicting the Bible, which teaches us clearly that we're to seek righteousness and holiness with all that's within us. Therefore, I believe Solomon's concern, and we talked about this last week, Solomon's concern is not primarily with godly character, which we think of as righteousness, and we should, but with godly character in our own eyes. His point is that we should not depend on our righteousness or wisdom to guarantee God's blessing in our lives. He's saying, don't assume that God owes you anything because you're righteous. And that's what I think it means to be super righteous. To somehow seek to control God with our behavior. And there are five signs of this, and I'm not going to do this... um, Exhaustively, It was the point of the sermon last week, but I'll I'll review them quickly. The five signs of being overly righteous are being disillusioned by circumstances, surprised by sin, destroyed by comments, frustrated by limitations, and disappointed by relationships. The idea is that God owes me circumstantially, God owes me morally, God owes me socially, God owes me freedom intellectually, and God owes me relationally. And we believe our righteousness earns us favor with God. When we believe that, we will burn ourselves out trying to justify our existence. You know, many times our efforts toward righteousness, toward godliness may actually appear good and righteous. We busy ourselves with the work of the kingdom and outwardly we can paste on a smile, but we can be sweating bullets inside. We can hardly keep up with the Christian life. We're not sure how to fix this, so we just keep working. We figure we must be deficient in something some godliness, some righteousness, because God is clearly not blessing us in the ways that we would like. 
The reality is that all of our super-righteousness is destroying us and perhaps even the people around us. Somewhere our work for the Lord became more about us than it was about Him. We stopped looking to Jesus as our functional Savior and we start looking to ourselves. We stopped trusting Jesus and we began to use Jesus. Then when that doesn't work out, we turn to wickedness. Our lives become a ping pong ball between working really hard for God, feeling awful that we can't measure up, which results in running from God and into sin. And it's that very reality that Solomon is talking about in verses 16 and 17, where he warns us not to be super righteous or overly wicked. So why do we behave this way? Why do we have this tendency to use God? Why do we have this tendency to try to procure blessing from God based upon our righteousness for God? And the reason is we don't fear God. That's Solomon's reason. Let's look at it. Verse 18, right on the heels of this command not to be overly righteous or overly wicked. Verse 18, Solomon says, it's good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. See, Solomon is saying that the way that we overcome over righteousness, the way that we avoid behaving this way is fearing God. Now, the question then becomes, what does that mean? What does it mean to fear God? Well, we could go a lot of places. The Bible has this theme shot right through it. But what I want to do is stay in Ecclesiastes and build a definition for the fear of God off Solomon's book here. All right. So I want us to look at there. There are no less than five times, including this passage that Solomon talks about the fear of God in Ecclesiastes. So let's look at the other four passages and try to build a definition off of that and then work it out. So let's start with chapter three, verse 14. This is a verse we've already, these first two verses we've already been through as we've made our way through the book here, but chapter three, verse 14. Solomon says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken from it. God has done it so people fear before him. Chapter 5, verse 9. Which I think I wrote down is incorrect. Because chapter 5, verse 9 does not say what I think it should say. Verse 7, thank you, PT. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Now, let's just stop here. Because I think 3.14 and 5.7 are similar in the idea they're trying to get across. What they're trying to say is, be impressed with God. God is a big deal. Be impressed with him. Be in awe of him. Be stunned by him. That's the idea. And that's part of what it means to fear God. Chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. 
Chapter 8, 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. And Sean Golly's in that group too. And Jim and Rayanne. It will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Now, what's the idea? It's not so much being impressed with God. It's having your behavior constrained by him. Right? Verse 12, though a sinner does evil and gets away with it and has a great life, which happens in this life, you can sin and be great, do well, no problems. Sin doesn't always lead to immediate consequences. You can prolong your life with sin. You can do it a hundred times and live into a ripe old age. You can live a life of disobedience to God and live long on the earth, is his point. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Who are those who fear God? That don't give their lives away to sin and evil. But rather constrain their obedience to God. This is also the idea I think that's expressed in the very last verse of the book or second to last verse of the book. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 13. This is the last one we'll look at. Ecclesiastes 12:13 says the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. So there's the idea of fearing God and letting it constrain your behavior to obedience. So based upon those four texts I think we can say that the fear of God means this. Here's my definition from the book. The fear of God is not being afraid of God that leads you to run from him, which so often people think is what we mean by the fear of God, that's being scared of God and running from him. No, rather it's being so impressed by God that you are constrained to obey him. That's the fear of God. Being so impressed with him that you are constrained to obey him. Now, the reason that we behave in super righteous ways is that we are not as impressed with God as we need to be or awed by his greatness in such a way that the truth that he speaks to us constrains our thinking, emotions, and behavior rather than living in the lies we tell ourselves. Because if you remember this super righteous person and the signs of super righteousness being disillusioned by circumstances and surprised by sin and disheartened and and confused and frustrated by limitations and pursuing pleasure horizontally, exclusively, that that sort of idea, they're not having a reference to God in their life. They're not, God is not a big deal. God is not the sun in the center of their solar system. Here's what one writer says. We only find true freedom when we embrace God's reign over our lives and trust his reign to be wise and good. And that's not what we do in our super righteous tendencies. We, rather than trust God's reign and embrace it, fight it. Which is what Solomon is talking about in chapter 7. And, and, and when we fight it, we don't embrace it. And instead of trusting his reign as wise and good, we try to figure out a way around it. 
So Solomon's solution says the reason for our super righteousness is that we don't fear God. And then if we do fear God, we shall come out from both of them. That is, we shall not behave in overly righteous or overly wicked ways. So here's what I want to do with the remainder of this sermon. I want to, I want to apply it. I just want to work it out. And I want to do that through by doing this. I want to talk about the, the main thing. Take this concept of the fear of God and work it out against the various signs of super righteousness that we saw last week, those five things. And I want us to attack that and show how the fear of God helps us to overcome those things. In his book, which is a very good book, and you should check it out if you are not familiar with it. In his book, You Can Change, author Tim Chester identifies four liberating truths about God. He suggests in his book that underlying all of our sinful behavior and negative emotions is a failure to believe one of these four truths at a functional level. Embracing, believing, trusting, delighting in the appropriate liberating truth has the power to set us free from sin, though we need to recognize that this is typically and will involve a daily struggle. But these four liberating truths, nevertheless, offer a diagnostic tool of sorts for addressing sin in our lives and in the lives of others. So where does he get these four truths from? He gets it from Isaiah 62. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read the verse. He gets it from Isaiah 62, verses 11 and 12, which say this. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that you, O Lord, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. So he goes to Isaiah 62 and he says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. Power belongs to God and steadfast love belongs to God. And what he does is he draws four key truths from those verses about God's character. And the key truths that God declares about himself are his greatness and glory. Power belongs to the Lord, our God. And his goodness and grace, steadfast love, belongs to you, O Lord. So based on that, he builds four truths. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the four truths now. Here are the four truths that he says are underneath and behind all of our sinful behavior. Number one, God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Number two, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. Number three, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Number four, God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. It's those four truths then that he unpacks and which I want to unpack and apply to us this morning especially as it relates to super righteousness over righteousness. So here's the first truth. God is great. So we don't have to be in control. Now, what I want to do is take each one of these four truths, show how it relates to the fear of God, because that's the main theme. That's what Solomon says helps us overcome super righteousness. I want to take this truth, show how it's part of the fear of God, and then apply it to a specific area of super righteousness. So here we go. 
God is great, so we don't have to be in control. What does that mean? It means that God is sovereign. God is king. God is all-powerful. He alone is in control. He alone. All other forms of supposed control that we see are a mirage. He and he alone are in control. Therefore, we don't have control. And we don't have to be in control. We don't have to stress and worry. We are free to rest in his power because he is great. Now that's part of the fear of God. How do I know? Psalm 96 verse 4. Let's look. Turn back to the book of Psalms. Two books before Ecclesiastes. And we're going to look at some verses that help us understand these things. So Psalm 96 and verse 4. And I want, to, I want you to see how God's greatness is a part of what it means to fear him. To recognize his greatness. I think it's going to come right out of the text. I'm not inventing this stuff. Psalm 96 verse 4. For God, for great, sorry, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. True or false? Part of the fear of God is to recognize his greatness and to recognize his sovereign control over everything. Yes. So when Solomon says fear God, he says relinquish your control. Over-righteousness, super-righteousness, we want to constrain God with our behavior. And he says, release it. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So part of what it means to fear God is to recognize his greatness, his control, his, his authority, his supremacy over all things. Therefore, we do not have to fall prey to Two of the signs of overrighteousness being disillusioned by circumstances, letting the things that happen in this world, the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering. We don't have to be disillusioned by that. Why? God is in control and God is great. Because we know who's on the throne and we know that every one of them is going to stand before that throne. And we also don't have to be frustrated by our limitations. Remember how Solomon was, oh, I sought wisdom. I sought wisdom. But then I had to come to the reality, oh, it's too deep for me. I can't figure it out. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to know all the whys. You don't have to know all the reasons. You know him who does. And so, as Spurgeon said, and in the case of Sean's and the Gollies right now, we can trust God's heart when we cannot trace God's hand. We can't trace his hand. We don't know what he's doing. But we do know this. He's up to 10 billion good things. And I probably under-exaggerated. Things that only will make sense when the tapestry is turned around. Things that will only make sense when we see him as he is. But we do know this. He is great. And we don't have to be in control. Second, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. This means that God looks at us through the sacrifice of Jesus. If we are in Christ, he does not give us what we deserve. 
Rather, he gives us precisely what we don't deserve, which is forgiveness and righteousness and adoption as sons and daughters. Therefore, we don't need to compete with each other or prove ourselves to God. We're free to love each other and live serving others and giving our lives away because he is gracious. Now, is does recognizing God as gracious, is that part of the fear of God? Yes. Let's look at Psalm 33. We're going to get all these out of the Psalms. Figured I would stay in the wisdom literature for most of this, since that's the genre of Ecclesiastes. Psalm 33, verse 18. Notice this. This is an amazing verse. Amazing. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, comma, on those who hope in his steadfast love. That's an amazing verse. You know what he's doing there? You know what grammatically is happening there? The first part is an, or the second part's an explanation of the first part. He says, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Who are those who fear you, God? Those who hope in my steadfast love. Those who rest in my grace. Only people that fear God believe the gospel. Only people that fear God rest in grace. Only people that fear God recognize they don't have to prove themselves. Why? Because God is great and God is more important than their reputation. And the status that God gives them in Christ and the love that he has for them in Christ is way more important than than other things that we try to do to prove ourselves. This is the same text as, in, as is used in Psalm 147, or the same idea is captured in Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11, where God says, My delight is not in the strength of a man or the legs of a horse, what can be accomplished by human power and human doing, but my delight is in those who fear me and those who hope in my steadfast love. So God is saying, I delight not in those who work hard And strive toward protecting themselves and defending themselves and all that. And demonstrating their strength and their power, but humbly receiving mine. Therefore, we don't have to be surprised by sin. Remember Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7 when he says, Wisdom makes us stronger than ten rulers in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And we talked about last week that being over-righteous is being surprised by that, being crippled by sin. And he says, no, you don't have to be surprised because God's love for you is not dependent on your behavior and your righteousness. Rather, it's dependent upon his steadfast love, and he wants you to hope in him. He wants you to hope in his steadfast love. That's what it means to fear God. So therefore, we don't have to prove ourselves. God's not looking for anything other than hope from us. He's looking for our trust. He's looking for our hearts. He's looking for our faith. He's looking for our hope. He's not not looking for us to get to work and prove something. He's not looking for us to submit a report card or a resume or a job application. He's looking for our trust. So we don't have to be sent over the rails by our inability to live up 
to God's, much less our own, righteous standards. God isn't looking for us to prove ourselves. He's looking for us to hope in his great love for us. Third point. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. The idea here is that God is the ultimate in the universe. He is the one who is truly glorious. Therefore, we don't need to fear other people or events. You know why we fear others? Because we transfer glory. We give people weight that they don't have. We give them glory. We, we, we scour before their glory. We, we back off from their glory. And Chester says in his book, you want to get over fearing others? Picture God right next to everybody. And then compare the two. And so we don't need to fear other people or events because God is glorious. God is the one with weight and heaviness and greatness. So we're free from being paralyzed by the fear of others. Isn't that what Solomon's dealing with in chapter 7? When he says in verse, I believe it's, I don't have the text in front of me. But remember when he says right in the middle of the passage, do not lay to heart things that people say about you. The reason we would lay it to heart is because we're giving glory to people that they don't have. He doesn't say, doesn't, don't listen to things that people say. We should do that and gain some wisdom. But don't take it to heart. Don't be crippled by it. Don't be broken by it. And the way we will not be broken by it is if we recognize God as being the one who is truly glorious. And his opinion of us is settled in Christ. Because life is not about our reputation. Life isn't about how other people treat me. Life is about God and his glory. Psalm 102 gets this idea across. Would you look there with me? Psalm 102, tying the fear of God to the glory of God. Psalm 102, verse 15. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. So there's fearing the name of God and fearing the glory of God. So to fear God is to recognize his great glory. We see this captured in other places. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 27, familiar verses to us. Remember what he says here? Fantastic verses, very practical. Help us work out this idea of the fear of God. David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? See what he's doing? The Lord is my light and my salvation. He's glorious. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. He's glorious. Of whom shall I be afraid? Whom shall I fear? So recognizing God's greatness, his glory, enables us not to fear others, which enables us to overcome super-righteousness because we're not being crippled and paralyzed by the opinions of others. Number four, God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And this is what Solomon is doing in the last part of our passage. 
and we can, we can turn back there now. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes 7. And with this, this last point, we're going to wrap up. From verse 25 on to 29, remember what he's doing? He's pursuing pleasure horizontally, right? And he's going back to a theme that he addressed in chapter 2, verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God, you could also input fears God, will escape from her. But the sinner, the one who doesn't fear God, is taken by her. See how fear of God is connected there with, or pleasing God is connected with getting out of this situation, overcoming this situation. Verse 27, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. He's trying to understand this. Which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. He said, I've pursued these relationships. I've pursued this horizontal pleasure. I've tried to find good. And it's left me empty. It left me bitter, he says in verse 26. More bitter than death. Rather be dead than experience that. Death would be less bitterness. He says, and all that I found after pursuing women, all that I found was that we're a bunch of broken people, devious toward each other and devious toward God. That's all I found. That's what I discovered. God made man upright, but we have sought out many schemes, many devices to try to find pleasure apart from God. So when we state the truth, God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere, this means that God satisfies our needs. We don't need to look to other things like money, fame, sex, alcohol, drugs, morality, or social issues to find our satisfaction. We are free to enjoy God's good gifts, knowing that ultimately he alone satisfies because he alone is good. And we see this in Psalm 34. Notice how the goodness of God is connected to the fear of God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. See how the fear of God is connected to the goodness of God? To fear God means to pursue pleasure in God. To taste and see that he is good. To take refuge in him. And he says to the saints, to the church, he says, Oh, fear the Lord. For those who fear him have no lack. You're not lacking anything. Everything that you need is already given to you in Christ. You lack nothing. And when we realize that God is good and that everything we truly need is found in him, we are free from having to pursue horizontally what can ultimately only be found vertically. So this means, brothers and sisters, practically, that we, we need to nurture these truths in our lives. We need to feed them by memorizing things like this, by meditating on things like this, by speaking this truth to ourselves, when something interrupts our lives and disorients us and disillusions us, we need to say to ourselves, God is great. I don't have to be in control. 
When somebody says something and it hurts us and wounds us, we don't have to be crippled by it. We can say, God is glorious. I don't have to be afraid of other people. When we are tempted to need something more than what we already have in Christ, and we feel like life is a burden and we're complaining and we have this duty all about us and we don't stick with things or complete assignments or projects, we just, God is good. We don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. When we have this tendency to perform and we take criticism badly and we find it hard to relax and We're proud of our success and we're envious of other success and we make people feel guilty. God is gracious. We don't have to prove ourselves. So we need to nurture our trust in God's greatness, our fear of God's glory, our delight in God's goodness, our rest in God's grace. We need to nurture that in our lives. Well, how do we do that? Word, prayer, Christian community. That's how we nurture everything spiritual in our lives. We, we feed ourselves. We seek the Lord. And we have other brothers and sisters around us to tell us the truth when we don't believe it ourselves. That's Christian community. When we face temptation, brothers and sisters, we need to say not only, I should not do this, But I need not do this. Have you ever thought about that? When temptation comes, so often we resist it as, oh, can't do that. God says no, which is true. But you also need not do it. Why do you need not do it? Because everything you have is given to you. Everything you truly need has been supplied to you. I don't need to worry. God is in control. I don't need this pleasure. God is my pleasure. I don't need this approval. God is my approval. Jesus is Lord. He runs life best. Jesus secures the Father's approval for me. I can't get it anymore. Jesus is the Father's gift. He's more than enough. Jesus has performed for me. It's finished. So when God gets bigger and better to us, we'll live life better. (laughs) And we'll be a total anomaly to the world that operates out of all of these things, control and approval and pleasure and performance all the time. Now, I want to encourage you to pick one of these on the way up. Um, You guys can throw it up on the screen if you want to or on the wall. If it's already up there, this, if you didn't take notes, I did it for you. And you want this. Okay. Um, the point community church put this out. So we gave them credit at the bottom, but we changed the logo at the top. It wasn't copyrighted. So they stole it from Chester who probably got it from other people too. But anyway, I think it's very, very helpful. And I want to encourage you to right on the outside doors. As you walk out, just pick one up. Okay. Put it in your Bible. Put it on your refrigerator, put it where you can, and it will help remind you of what, what we're calling the four G's. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And God is gracious. And it gives you who God is, what particular idol is being attacked, what the fruit of unbelief is and how Jesus makes it 
true, okay? So I encourage you to, uh, to pick one of those up. They're out. Um, I've made about 75 or 80 copies, so um, I know that probably won't be enough for everybody, but I didn't want to make too many. And if you need it, you just, uh, you just email me. Or, or I'll send it out through email and you can, you can print it off yourself. But I printed enough so that not, I didn't assume everyone would need one. I figured, you know, one copy for, fa- for family, maybe two. So please don't everybody in the family take one. But um, if, if, if a couple of you in your family or if you're single and you just want to grab one, that's great. So hope it'll be an encouragement to you in a way to flesh this out in the weeks and days ahead. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word this morning and talk about the fear of God. Talk about what it means to be impressed with you and constrained by you and how that works out practically as we seek to fight against our desire to be um, or our tendency to be overly righteous. And so, Lord, would you would you help us? Would you we've just scratched the surface on these things and there's so much more we could talk about. But trust that what you have showed us shown us from your word this morning would be a great ballast for our for our souls would be a great encouragement to us would be a stabilizing influence on our faith and on our trust in you and would give us weapons for the fight we're going to meet this as soon as we get up out of our seats and we're going to face this these temptations for the rest of our lives but you have given us the promises by which we may escape the corruption of the world and by which we might be partakers of, of, of you and, and your grace and your glory and know you and walk with you and, and know what it means to know and show you to the world. So we ask for your help to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.